You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We're going to be this morning in... um the second chapter of Titus, the little book of Titus, one of the, the pastoral epistles um, in the, the back, near the back of your Bible in the New Testament, Titus chapter two. But before we get there and while you're finding your way there, I want to, to read to you a familiar passage from the gospel of Luke chapter two regarding the birth of Jesus and particularly the witness of God to the shepherds in the fields. So while you're finding Titus 2, I'll read Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. We're familiar with passages like this um, being read and, and being preached and being taught this time of year. They're treasured passages um, that I think stir up sentiments and affections in our hearts for this time of year. There are at least two ways to approach the Christian season when it comes to uh, the preaching and teaching of this message. It is um, to cover it descriptively as we have in Matthew and Luke, the, the description of how it was that, that God in, in miraculous and supernatural and historical ways broke into human time and space and brought about the incarnation of his son. And then we have texts of explanation that tell us why it is that this happened and why it is significant. And my concern always around this time of year is that you and I will, in a sense, Uh, certainly as Herod did, miss the significance of Christmas and allow sentimentality as a poor substitute for significance. And we have a lot of sentimentality. A lot of us have great memories. Some of us have some terrible memories from Christmas. Um, Some of you just have in the middle memories where you yearn so much for this one thing and you never got it. Some of you are still deeply wounded by that. You're angry at your parents. You're exciting, excited to pick their nursing home because that one year when you were eight or you were 10, they knew, or 12 or 15, what you wanted from them. And they chose not to get that thing for you. And deep in your heart, in places you don't share with people, you think their day's coming because they've got a place they yearn to go. And I'm not going to pick it. I hope that's actually none of you. But I don't want us to miss the significance of Christmas for the poor substitute of the sentimentality 
of the Christmas time. So I want us to look now at Titus chapter two as Paul fleshes out in this small letter to Titus the significance of the coming of Christ that we celebrate this time of year with almost a third of the world's population. Isn't that amazing? Almost a third of the world's population this month or next month there are at least 16 or so countries that celebrate uh, toward the, the latter end or the middle of January, rather, um, than in December, but will celebrate the historic event of God coming to earth. Look at Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Do not let anyone despise you. I want to call your attention really to, to three phrases in the very first uh, verse of this passage, in verse 11. I won't really work through verses 12 uh, through 15, but we'll comment on those um, in terms of their relationship to verse 11 toward the end. But I want to call your attention to three phrases this morning and pray that God opens his word to us. Will you bow with me now as I do that? Father in heaven, we come this morning to celebrate you. We come this morning, God, to lay ourselves before you. God, you're the one that truly knows us. And God, I pray that your spirit would fill this space and this time that we have together. That your spirit would speak to your people through your word and form in them the image and character and person of your son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stir our affections for you, God. Renew a sense of wonder and delight and joy in the salvation that you extend to sinful and broken and rebellious people. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at these phrases. The very first is right at the beginning, the grace of God. For the grace of God, Paul starts out and says, and I know we hear a lot about grace and we talk a lot about grace and there uh, are songs about grace, both Christian and non-Christian, but I wonder how many of you, if given just a little slip of paper and said, write a succinct one-sentence definition of grace, could do that. It's one thing to hear about it. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to sing about it. It is another to experience it. It's another to know what it is and to know it as Jonathan Edwards said, not in a head knowledge like honey that is sweet, but in the sincere personal knowledge of having tasted it and having it explode in your own life and your own world. Grace simply is the unmerited and spontaneous love and favor of God. 
the unmerited and spontaneous love and favor of God. Not only is it unmerited in the fact that you and I don't warrant it, we're, we're not deserving of it. In fact, we are quite undeserving of it. And we couldn't earn it, no matter how hard we work. But we try, don't we? In the places uh, that are deep in our soul, we try so hard off and on to earn and to maintain God's favor and pleasure. And we feel, we feel on the days that we're at our worst that God is displeased with us based on good and bad behavior that day, based on what we've done and what we've not done. But I say to you over and over and over that if God's pleasure or displeasure was grounded not in him and what he's done in Jesus Christ, but in you and your behavior and the motivations of your heart and the meditations of your mind, who in here could please God? I mean, are we so deluded to believe that we're pure enough of heart, steady enough of mind, true enough a behavior day in and day out to please a holy and a pure God? God's grace has to be unmerited. There's no other way. His love and his favor have to come to us in spite of us, not rooted in us, but rooted in him. And it's spontaneous. It's not that we plead that he would give us his grace. It explodes into our life. I use again that consistently famous conversion experience of C.S. Lewis who gets on the motorcycle with his brother. He's not a Christian. When he gets off at the zoo, he is. God has opened his heart to the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now there's a backstory there. Lewis had been wrestling with God. He'd been accepting some truth and reality, but his heart couldn't get there. His mind couldn't get there. Grace is the unmerited and spontaneous love and favor of God. Do you know that this morning? Do you know it in the places that drive the way that you feel about yourself, that drive the way that you treat your spouse, that drive the, drive the way you, you treat your neighbors and you see your neighbors, you see your coworkers? Some of us need grace-healed eyes. We need grace to heal the lenses through which we see others so we can see them simply as no less and no more than people who are in the same need of the same grace of God as we are. Spontaneous love and favor. Do you know that favor? Because I will tell you, when you feel it and when it explodes in your life, there is a desire to dance and to live and to be free before God that nothing else produces. Grace is at the very center of Paul on theology. If you want to understand Paul, one of the greatest lives ever lived by any measure, you've got to understand grace. Grace was at the center of it because it was at the center of Paul's own journey with God. Paul despised Christians. Despised these followers of Christ. Paul was not agnostic, obviously. Paul was a, a, a faithful, devout Jew looking for the coming Messiah, a worshiper of Yahweh, and yet a persecutor vehemently of the church and of Christians, believing them to be blasphemers, liars. And then all that changes one day, not at Paul's bidding, not because someone shared a tract with him, but because the risen Lord revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus and blew his life up. 
and saved him and changed him forever. I tell you, and you've heard me say this time and time again, if you know some genuinely lost people, and I hope you do, this is, the only, this is the only hope I've ever been able to find for friends and family that I knew to be completely, totally lost. It's not that one day, just out of enough discussion, they're gonna choose God and ask him to do what only he can do in their lives, but that God's going to show up and save them. This is how we pray. This is our plea. The grace of God, the unlimited, extended favor of God toward men and women who deserve only his judgment and only his wrath, but who in Christ are made recipients of his manifest love and favor. This is the message of Christmas. Christmas matters. This is why Christmas matters the day after Christmas and the week after Christmas. We tend to celebrate Christmas and talk about Christmas in this kind of vacuum. As if once a year for about three weeks, four, if we're highly liturgical, we're going to read some, some passages that deal with the descriptive events of the coming of Jesus, and we're going to wear Christmas colors. Red is not in my color palette, so I can't pull that off. Some of you, John, you're looking good this morning. Some of you guys can. Blue, which my twins tell me is a Christmas color, but not one of the central ones, which are red and green. I try to pull off, so I've got blue in here. But we, we wear Christmas colors. We feel sentimental. We read this. We just, but we've lost its connection and context to the whole and the full redemptive work of Christ and of God in Christ. This is why he came. Philip Yancey, in a fantastic book, if you connect more with art stories than, than head reasoning, then this is a fantastic book for you if you've not read it. What's so amazing about grace? We carry it uh, in the bookstore out here. But Yancey um, shares story after story after story in there and weaves through biblical teaching in his own life experiences about how grace has interrupted the lives of individuals. He says in there that grace teaches us that God loves us because of who God is, not because of who we are. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. I'm curious if you believe that this morning. If you really believe that there's nothing you can do that would make God love you more. If you're in Christ... This is a true statement. Again, Romans 8.1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None at all. Christ absorbed it all on the cross. How dare we diminish or try to take from the finished work of Christ on the cross by believing that there's anything we could do that would make God love us more or love us less. Haven't had a quiet time in a while God doesn't love you less. You know him less. And you're missing the experience of that devoted, consistent, specific, intentional time with him. But it doesn't diminish his pleasure in you or his love for you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more and nothing you can do to make him love you less. Yancey goes on and says, grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Paul says in the book of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. That's the next phrase, has appeared. On its surface, it doesn't seem that significant. It just seems like something Paul writes as he's moving on to other things. But oh, it is so significant. In John chapter one, 
Verse 16, regarding this appearing and the grace with which it brought. John writes, out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. If Jesus had not come, we would not have been able to receive out of his fullness. And I don't know about you. I really don't. Some of you I do know, and I know this is true. But I do know that for me, I need grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in my life. Last night, and I don't think Sharon would mind me telling you this. And yes, for those of you who were nervous last week about whether or not I had asked Karis' permission to share the Pocahontas story, I had indeed. So you can relax and laugh with us. If you weren't here last week, you just missed that gym. Um, Last night I told Sharon that sometimes I just stress and other things push in and press on uh, at this time of year and can cause my soul to really struggle uh, to feel and to experience the joy and the delight of this time of year. She said, oh, I know. Uh, You've been a real thrill to be around at home. Like, oh, man. But she's right. She's right. If Jesus had not come, We wouldn't have had his fullness to experience the grace upon grace that comes from his appearing. First John, not John, but first John, chapter one, verses one through three, John writes, that which was from the beginning, in other words, that is Christ, the word of God, which was uh, with God in the beginning and came from God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. When you, when you look at this language and you study the first century, you understand that John is using legal language here. He's using the language of a first century courtroom of someone being sweared in to give official, legal, and trustworthy testimony before a sovereign judge or magistrate. He's saying, just as I would swear to under law in a courtroom, On penalty of judgment, I'm speaking to you about the one that we saw with our own eyes, that we looked at, that our hands have touched, that we heard speaking to us in our own presence. And this is the one we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you that the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The the fact that the Apostle Paul says that the grace of God has appeared is significant because he's saying God reaches out to us. God has made himself known. He's drawn near. He's come to us. He's taken the initiative. He's reached out. How many of you have family in, in other states? All right, that's, that's most of you. How many of you have family in other states who believe that the highway only goes to them? <laughs> that's a lot of you, right? We know this because one of the things that communicates love and communicates value It's when people go a distance to see you. Now, some of you are like, don't preach this in front of them because I'm happy for the highway to only go toward them. 
I don't want them to discover that it comes back toward us as well. But one of the things that communicates value and love is the distance one goes to be with another. And Paul is reminding us that at Christmas, God has gone the entire distance from heaven to earth, from untold riches to human poverty, from infinite beauty and glory and love in the community of the triune God to the finiteness of human flesh in the pain and the reality of human life. This is how it had to be, had to be. We can't wonder or think our way to God. We can't, in a sense, find God. Some of you are alive and old enough to remember in 1961 when Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, orbited the earth, the first man to do that. I don't mind being the first to do a lot, but I'm not gonna be the first to go into space and see if I can spin around the earth and come back. That's just me. But he did this. And some of you might even remember the news coverage and newspaper articles of Nikita Khrushchev when he came back. Of course, they were the Soviet Union, an atheist country. And there was the Cold War, which was not only Um, just a cold war, but it was a clash of ideologies and a clash of religious sentimentalities between a Judeo-Christian West and an atheistic communist Soviet Union. Khrushchev said, and I love this, I love how he put it, Gargarin flew into space but didn't see any God there. And he said, we believe that we're atheists on good evidence and we believe now we have more evidence because we've been to space and God wasn't there. He just wasn't up there. C.S. Lewis, alive and vibrant at this time, heard this and had to write a response to it. It's a, it's a small article called uh, The Seeing Eye. The Seeing Eye. You can find it online. You can hear it read on YouTube. Fantastic article. Lewis said, this is ridiculous. You can't think about God's relation to man as you think about upstairs and downstairs. Like if you run upstairs and, and, and there's no one in the bedrooms, then, then there's no one there. That's not how we relate to God. He said, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you'll find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. Now listen to this last paragraph, which I love. If there were an idiot who thought plays exist on their own, that's a swipe at Lewis for the atheistic bravado of his day. If there were an idiot that thought plays exist on their own without an author, our belief in Shakespeare would not be much affected by his saying, quite truly, that he had studied all the plays and had never found Shakespeare in them. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? You believe in Shakespeare? That's ridiculous. I've read all his plays. I didn't find him in any of them. Right. Right. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are likely or unlikely to find him in space. Hang it all, which is his way of saying, in fact, we're in space already. Every year we go a huge circular tour in space. 
But send up a saint in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Much depends on the seeing eye. Some of you will be familiar with Dorothy L. Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a novelist, a playwright, um, a dynamic uh, personality and contributor um, to especially this genre of, of crime fiction and murder mystery in the 20th century. She died in 1957. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. In fact, she finished her studies at Oxford in 1915, but left without a diploma because they didn't, they, they didn't award diplomas to women in that time. I thought then about the distinct difference between men and women. A man would not do that. A man would not go to a place and go all the way through his studies and go on about life knowing he would not get a degree from there. It's just not in the heart of men. We're like, no, we will be awarded and applauded for what we do, or we will not do it. But she did. And then in 1920, when Oxford officially began awarding diplomas to women, she was one of the first to actually receive her diploma five years after finishing her studies there. Like I said, she was a crime novelist, wrote detective stories, and her most famous character was a, a sort of gentleman detective named Lord Peter Whimsy. Lord Peter Whimsy. Um, in the novels and in the stories, he's single for most of his life as he goes around sort of uh, solving crimes with great delight, very good at this, great mind. But then suddenly, eventually, a woman appears in the series. The woman is named Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane. She's average looking. She's one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She is a writer of detective novels, and she and Peter meet, solve a couple of mysteries together, which is the best way to fall in love. Solve a couple of mysteries together, fall in love, get married, and live happily ever after. Literary critics obviously note that Sayers, as she saw Lord Peter Whimsy across the pages of crime after crime being solved and being solved, began to love this character and began to see his loneliness, that he had nothing in his life but his work and had compassion on him and wrote herself into the story to love him and to save him from a life of ultimate meaninglessness. It's a sweet story, but it's a true story in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That God has looked down at the true story unfolding in your life and my life, and he has loved us, and he has seen the meaninglessness in our lives, and he has seen our inability to do anything about it, and in a sense, written himself into the story and the incarnation and the person and work of his son that we celebrate this time a year. Final phrase, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. Offers salvation. Has appeared not to help you, not to tell you how good you are, not just to clean you up, not to give you a list as every other religion and every other human philosophy does, a list of things around which you can do with your life to, to find nirvana, to empty yourself of yourself, to get to heaven, to get to God, but to do for you what you can't 
do for yourself. He offers salvation to all people. It's remarkable. Many of you uh, know well Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the what? The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Why would Paul write this? Paul wrote this because there was a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, to say this message sounds ridiculous. Who conquers by dying? Who obtains victory through perceptible defeat? Who says that God becomes a human being, fully God, fully man? It's nonsensical. If you were making up something, you couldn't even come up with this. And if you could, if you were like a mega genius, you wouldn't because you would say this is going to be ridiculous and no one's going to believe it. In the host of Roman gods, Paul stands proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth, a historical man, to be God, to have achieved the redemption for all who receive it through a brutal execution at the hands of the state and then was raised from dead, who good people have always known don't happen. We know that today. Of all of you who've buried a loved one or a friend throughout your life, how many of you have ever had one come back to you? Anybody? I'm so glad no one raised their hands. It didn't occur to me that you might until after I'd said that. And then I thought, well, I'm gonna have to have a moment with someone after service if somebody raises their hands. Dead people don't come back. Don't think in our advanced intellectual snobbery that we're the first people to know this. I'll tell you this, first century people knew a lot more about death than we do. A lot more. They knew that people don't come back. And yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. This message of what God has done in human history, it's not good advice. It's news. It's good news that something has happened by which the world truly is a different place now. And this had to appear. The grace of God had to appear. Because again, we couldn't get to him. Yesterday I took um, our twins to Elizabeth Porter Park. It's a park in Marietta named apparently after someone. And one of the little things you can do there is this series of plastic rings that are about uh, maybe a yard in width, circular. Um, there's a ge uh, geometry word for that. I can't think of it. Circumference maybe. I don't know. But there are about six of them in order and they ascend. They get higher and higher, and there's about six inches between each plastic circle and their chain. They kind of move. And, and Zeke, our, our youngest child, the youngest of the twins, he was going to crawl through. Zeke's not the most, at this point, coordinated person on earth. But he started climbing through. He got to about the second or third ring, and then he began to drop, and his arms were hanging on, and he was dropping. And he was screaming for me. In fear and peril, daddy, help me, daddy, help me. Now, I'm not God, so I didn't. 
But I could see that the fall was not going to hurt him, but teach him. It was going to help him. And I said, you'll be fine, son. Just drop. No, daddy. He would scream to be saved because he knew there was no way out of this thing for him. And eventually he dropped and he's fine. And he was fine then. It was a great teaching moment. I applauded myself. Um, But a true redemption experience comes when a human heart cries out to God in that kind of moment. It doesn't matter whether you walk an aisle, you fill out a card, you pray a sinner's prayer. None of that makes any difference at all. It is the cry of a human heart in the moment when you recognize your sinfulness by God's grace and mercy, having been supplied the faith to believe that what Jesus has done is enough. It is that cry that opens the doors of redemption in a human heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say it's, it's the kind of invitation that a, uh, a drowning man gives to a life float when thrown out to him. He doesn't just say, come over to me and perhaps we'll do this water thing together. It's the throwing of one's life on it. And to view, to view the Christian story and the Christmas story in particular in a kind of detached reality apart from any historical or redemptive context, causes us to enjoy the sentimentality of this time of year, but to miss the significance of it and why it should change us as we go back to work on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and back to school. The significance of the cradle that we think so much about this time of year is that it led to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus is bearing sin. Not his sin, because he was sinless. He's bearing our sin. On the cross, he's taking punishment. Not his, but ours. On the cross, he's providing redemption to that which has been lost. Maybe that's you this morning. John Calvin, thinking about the the great extent and the breadth of salvation said, no one is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set, up, is set open unto all people. Neither is there any other thing which keeps us back from entering in, save only our own unbelief. Maybe some of you this morning feel like the best that you can do is show up and be faithful and try to do good works and give to the poor and try to love your neighbor because you feel like there's some kind of darkness in you. There's some kind of sin or tendency towards sin that if you could just be free, you'd say gets the better of you over and over and over again. Or maybe some kind of darkness in you, not over something that you've done, but something that's been done to you that makes you feel inadequate, unworthy, and unable to receive God's grace. Can I just tell you this morning, you're not. In fact, it's the very feeling of inadequacy and unworthiness and inability to do anything to please God that positions you to receive 
this grace which has appeared for the salvation of all who were received by faith Jesus Christ. Maybe if you're honest, some of you are in here and it's not that you think you're too bad. If we're honest, you think you're too good. Maybe there's nothing particular that you wrestle with over and over, at least that you're aware of. And you feel like I've got a good marriage and I've got good kids and gosh darn it, I'm good looking and people like me. I excel in my career and basically at anything I touch. I don't mind doing some some Jesus stuff around this time of year and I'll hit it again big at Easter whenever mom makes me go. It's a dangerous gamble, friend. Can I just say to you, you're not too good for God to save. Maybe he'll come and do that today. When you look at the rest of these verses, you're reminded, as Spurgeon said, that it's not that our salvation should be the result of our works, but that our works should give evidence of our salvation. This is what Paul's getting at when he goes on in verse 12 and says, it teaches us what teaches us? This grace that's appeared and offered salvation to us. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Teaches us. There's training required here. There's submission on our parts. There's work. Not work to earn, but work that's part of our growth and our understanding to ungodliness and worldly passions. This grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this age while we wait. The life of a Christ follower is a life of waiting. It's a pilgrimage for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good works. I pray that's you this morning. I pray that's me. And if it's not, the same grace of God that has appeared, the salvation of all is open to you this morning. Let's stand. I'm gonna pray for us. And as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions when I finish. We'll receive offering this morning if you give on Sunday mornings as opposed to throughout the week online. Um, or by text. You can drop in your connection cards. Um, write down your prayer requests on the back. We're honored to pray for you as your staff. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you came to us when we couldn't come to you. Thank you, God, that your grace has appeared. And in its great appearing, in the person and work, the victory on the cross and in the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, salvation has come. From the heart of every man and every woman, God, you've placed a degree of knowledge of yourself and we know that we stand guilty before you. Lord, I pray this time of year as we focus on the coming of your son, that you would in ways that only are possible through your grace and mercy would renew in us the joy of your salvation. I pray in Jesus' name.
For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.